the Disney film Tangled is a family favorite. It's a if you have kids, you almost certainly know about it. It's it's a Rapunzel retelling, and um, in the in the movie in the film, Rapunzel's mom, at least the person you think uh, is her mom that's raised her in this tower, she's super old. She's essentially a witch, but she's beautiful, and the way that she stays beautiful on the outside is 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 through Rapunzel's hair. She sings a song and combs it, and her hair has magical powers that keep her looking young. Um, so she's not her mom at all. It turns out. Sorry, spoiler. If you haven't read the <laughs> read the the uh, the story or seen the movie, um, but so she's gorgeous, but only on the outside. On the inside, so truly, she's a witch. She's selfish. She's manipulative, grasping, vain. She's murderous. Uh, she's she's a really terrifically characterized. Uh, terrifically crafted character by Disney just repulsive uh, so grasping and and so manipulative but but beautiful Uh, but then when the power breaks when the magic breaks um, she is seen for what she is and she just immediately emaciates and 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 just just becomes horribly witchy and ugly uh, which is her her true self Um, that is a a, a decent picture of, of this church here uh, in Sardis, we're looking at the let's see, fifth of seven churches. It starts out Revelation chapter three, the first six verses, and you know the theme here is just going to be that God is not fooled by appearances. You know, I was just in my quiet time this morning in Samuel, and part of my part of the narrative is Samuel sixteen, where we've just finished with Saul, who's he's this amazing looking tall. Um, impressive character and the kings of old tended to be that way they tended to be commanders on the battlefield taller than the rest i mean william wallace braveheart his his sword was i think five feet six inches i've seen it um in uh, in sterling scotland 45 minutes northwest of of edinburgh where we lived for four years he was he was a beast of a man not not at all like uh not at all like um, Mel Gibson, who's short but but tall and imposing. Saul was like that, but he ended up on the inside being someone who did not hold to God, but he used God. Uh, David wasn't like that, and and he's a great foil for Samuel, uh, for Saul, I should say. And and God says to Samuel when Samuel's looking at all these impressive sons of in chapter sixteen of. Um, of Jesse, David's David's father. Jesse has his son, his seven sons lined up, and and Samuel says, "Surely it's one of these." And and God says, "No. Man looks on the outside, but but not God. I look on the inside. God God sees right to the core, which is encouraging because we want Him to know us and others as." They truly are. We want God not to be fooled. I mean, if God were fooled, he wouldn't be God. He needs to know what's truly going on. Nothing, nothing is hidden from him. Not even hell can hide things from God. Certainly not no darkness, certainly no sin, certainly no appearance or covering or pretense or surface. Uh, it's also t- quite terrifying because we, we, none of us, if we're honest, 
Now, if we're self-deluded, then <laughs> it's a different story. But if we're self-deluded, then uh, it's the people that think that they're okay that are that are the most self-deluded. Uh, but but those that are honest are partly honest. Know that they're on the inside. There are serious problems. There's hypocrisy. There's vanity. There's st- so much selfishness, selfishness and pride, and grasping and lust and envy, and all the sins, all of the vices. They're there. And that's a real problem because God sees that. Anyway, so God's not fooled by appearances. And this church really encapsulates that message. Um, God doesn't care about what seems, but what is. And so much of our lives, we put up these fronts, even if we don't mean to. We get, I mean, our culture trains us, right? And our hearts encourage us to, to put up appearances. And God won't countenance that because he... Because he knows and he sees and because he cares. Uh, you know, appearance is, is just like, a, on a black heart, it's just like lipstick on a cadaver to God. It sickens him. He hates hypocrisy because he is truth and he loves us. And so, and so he comes down hard on this church in Sardis. Uh, let me go ahead and read, uh, let me go ahead and read uh, the passage. One commentator states kind of everything I've been trying to say with, um, with sobering and convicting conciseness. He says, all regard her, this this church in Sardis, all regard her as a flourishing, active, successful church. All except Christ. So there there are a lot of churches, and churches are composed of people, right? Saints and sinners. But but saints, saints who are sinners, but they're characterized, they're, they're identified by the righteousness that is theirs through faith in Christ, the God's righteousness. Uh, and then, and then filled with, you know, churches are also filled with those that either think they're believers or, and are not, or, or don't, but are, but are there. Um, but the church, the invisible church, the true church is, is composed of saints. And, um, you know, this, this church is, uh, she's apparently flourishing, active and successful, but, but on the end, but she's not actually that way. So Christ has a hard work to her. Here it is. And to the angel of the church in Sardis, right? The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. And I think one of the reasons I'll just comment on this before I go on, he says that is because the seven spirits of God in Revelation 1, we're told the seven spirits of God go out through all the earth. And, and it's seven. God is, God is spirit. He's one spirit. He's holy. But seven because, uh, and it goes on to say, you know, basically to talk about how the power of the Holy Spirit and the, the understanding and the sight of the Holy Spirit are complete. They go out, the seven spirits go out through all the earth. They see the spirit of God, God himself. He sees all, nothing can hide from him. He has all power. So I think that's one of the reasons that we're reminded of that aspect of Christ here. He has the seven spirits of God and he holds, he holds the seven stars. He, he holds the churches in his hand. He cares for them. Even though he's going to, he's going to come down hard on them. Uh, he, he, it's because he cares, not because he hates. I know your works. Someone who comes down hard on you, they could just hate you and they try to break you. But if they have a relationship with you, if they're connected to you, if, if, they, if they love you, if they're invested, they're really, somebody that comes down hard on you is doing it because they care. I mean, most people don't care enough to say hard things to you. I mean, think about your next door neighbor. You probably, unfortunately, don't have the kind of relationship where you would say something hard to them that they need to hear. That's because you don't care that much about them, and that's sad, but it's true. 
um, we want people in our lives that care enough. Jesus is that kind of person. He will tell us, he will give us hard words. I mean, his hardest word to us is the cross. This is what you deserve. I'm taking it. It's also the most emancipating word. It's also the most liberating and the most freeing word. This is what you deserve. I'm taking it. Admit that and come to me as your savior and your Lord, right? I know your works. You've the reputation of being, and those that, by the way, those that can't receive that word will perish in hell apart from him forever. And those that couldn't receive that word crucified him. But through that crucifixion, he, he offered to them, hey, well, you know, on the heels of his resurrection and continues to today, you who crucified me, you know, God has, I have used this to, to open up a portal of salvation for you. So come, come to me. So there's still time as long as we're breathing to repent and to come to Christ and his cross. I know your works. Jesus says to this church, right? I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive. So there it is, right? They have a good reputation. Maybe our church, maybe you, you as a person, but you're dead. Wow. That is God is saying this to Christians. Mm. Maybe a lot of these guys think that they're believers and they're not. Whew. Maybe they're believers that are just walking around like corpses. Wake up, he says, and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. So that it really does seem that they are, they received it. They heard it. They're about to die, but he says, you are dead. So really, I mean, it seems like these are believers that have really backslidden and fallen asleep. Keep it and repent, he says. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come against you. The coming of Christ is not good news, friends, to those that are not in him and to those uh, that, are, that are Christians that are claiming his name that are not following him, that are living as they want to live. It's not going to be pretty. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, verse 4. So there are a few here. He knows, he doesn't just know each church, guys. He knows each person in each church. He doesn't just know each person in each church. He knows the hairs on our head. He has them numbered. He doesn't just have the hairs on our head numbered. He doesn't just go down to the molecular level, to the atomic level, to the microscopic level. He has the stars numbered. Is that Psalm 147? He has the stars, excuse me, named. The stars, trillions upon trillions upon trillions, countless, named. He created the nano trucks. He created all the microscopic molecules, the electrons, the quarks, all of it. Okay. He knows it all. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not, and let that encourage you. If you are, if you are faithfully serving the Lord in a very small way, changing diapers, creating Excel spreadsheets, sharing your faith, faithfully in, in, in serving others, in articulating the gospel and holding out the hope of Christ, in loving your family, in loving your neighbor, in choosing not to assert yourself and not to win the argument, but to serve. Man, you, God sees this. He is pleased. You've still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Wow. And again, they are worthy. Why? Because they've done a bunch of good stuff. No. I'm kind of extrapolating as I, as I read here. I'm not meaning to, but sorry. It's a, it just, it just happens. They're with me in white. We know from that. We know from that. You don't wear a white garment unless it's put upon you. It's put upon you. It's the righteousness of another. Theologians call this the alien righteousness, the outside righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. Philippians three, yeah, not, not having a righteousness of, of my own, Paul says, but that which comes from God 
through faith in Christ. We receive it, the righteousness of Christ. If you are a Christian, you are clothed in the same righteousness that Jesus has because it's his. You are clothed in the same righteousness. You have the same standing as, as, as the most sanctified believer. As a mother tree, a plus plus. Because, because you both have the righteousness of Christ. You can't, be, you can't improve on that. And God can't, he can't be with less than that. He can't look on sin. Do you see? Do you see why no, no amount of good works is enough to give you adequate standing with God? But once you're in Christ by faith, work out that salvation with fear and trembling. You know, walk into Ephesians 2.10, the good way. And I just quoted from Philippians 2. Now Ephesians 2.10, walk, walk out into the good works that God has prepared before him that you should walk in them, Right? Put to death your sin, Romans 7, and on and on it goes, but only because you stand in an alien righteousness. You are, as Martin Luther said, simul justus et peccator. At the, at the same time, just, justified, righteous, et peccator, and a sinner. First John 1, we, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not, is not in us. But if we confess our sins to God, the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sins, right? And we have his righteousness and we have his blood for cleansing. We continue to sin, though not with impunity. We continue to sin. We repent of it. We know that our standing isn't based on our works, but on his. It's a life of faith from start to finish. The one who, that's all me. Okay, verse five. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white. He's in white garment. Look, he's talking to, he's talking to the people he just admonished. Most of the church are, they're dead. They're almost dead. They are, they've forgotten that their righteousness is in Christ Jesus, that they are walking it out by faith in him. They've forgotten the gospel. They've started to live for themselves. Maybe they started to, I mean, look, living for yourself and, and, and being dead can look, is, is, can look religious and not irreligious. This church looks good. That means that they're, they're probably not dead, drunk, and gutters. They're probably a very religious church, but religious, religiosity forgets the gospel. You've forgotten you know, that you are a sinner that has no hope in, in who you are and what you do in and of yourself. My, your hope is outside of you in Jesus Christ. You've forgotten that. You've forgotten the, your liberation. You've started to go back to your own works. Stop it. That's deadness. Stop it. Okay. And that's all an insertion for me. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. He's not talking about the, the few that he's already commended in the church that are unstained and or they already have white garments. He's saying, you'll be with them, you dirty because you will, you will turn back to me and remember the amazing news of free and full forgiveness in Christ Jesus, and you'll walk in that, and you're standing in Christ. You'll abide in me, and good works will flow from that by the power of your Holy, the Holy Spirit, make you a fruitful, a fruitful new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Right, So you too will be clothed in white, he says. So that all together we have the same standing, the same promise. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let me just say this because I feel like it's maybe the one of the few, maybe the only big thing in the text that I haven't sort of at least touched on yet. And I haven't even, I mean, honestly, I haven't even gotten to my notes. I just sort of read the text and impromptu commented but in the end there he says i won't i won't if you conquer clothed, you clothed in white the righteousness of christ as i interpret it right it's, it's a, the righteous the righteous robe is placed on the wedding guest it's, it's given to 
as you say, yes to an invitation to the feast, which Jesus invites us to through his life, through his death, through his resurrection. So it's given to us. It's God's righteousness, not ours. It's Paul says in Philippians three. Um, I won't blot your name out of the book of life. That's a, that's a bit, that can be a bit jarring. It should be jarring, but look, it's, it, it's, does that mean we can lose our salvation? I would say in a, in a word, no. He's not talking about, he's talking about. And it, it's not new here. I mean, it comes at least out of Isaiah. Exact, Exodus 33, when um, Moses says to God, well, blot, look, Mo, God is angry with a disobedient Israel. She's just made a golden calf, and Moses steps in between God and the people, and he says, me for them. Take me instead. Blot my name out. Not those. Not theirs. It's a picture of Christ. God says, Moses, no. And he forgives, he forgives the people. Some of them die in the wilderness. Um, he's a picture of Jesus. Jesus, and this is my point. Jesus, we don't... Hmm. We need to be sobered by this text. We need to understand that we cannot live any way we want to as believers, even religious, whether religious or irreligious, relying on a, our own uh, merits, our own performance, our own behavior, rather than the finished work of Christ. Um, or just living as we want in, a, in sin. We can't do that and call ourselves Christians and think that the Lord will be pleased with us and just wave a wand of forgiveness over us. Uh, coming to him means giving him our lives and it means surrendering. It means picking up our crosses and following him. It means crucifixion to our desires and saying yes to him no matter what. He's the king now. Um, but the fact is that he was blotted out. Moses, God said no to Moses, but he said yes to his son. He Somehow in the span of time, Jesus was cast away from the Father's presence and had the active wrath of God poured out on him against every sin for every single person who would look to Jesus by faith. It was paid for by Jesus. He became our sin, 2 Corinthians 5, on the cross, that what we might become, not just receive, we might become his righteousness. Amazing. The great exchange, as Martin Luther, the reformer, called it. Um, this one who gives us this sobering word of warning is also the one who was blotted out for us that we might be brought in. He was broken that we might be made whole. He became sin so that we could be without sin. He became our sin that we might become his righteousness. This is the same one saying, and I will not blot your name out. And so I just want to emphasize that because it's because he endured so much and to make a way for us to not be blotted out that he takes so, that he so seriously says, I will not blot your name out, but you must come to me. You must lean on me. You must look to me. You must live in me. You must live out of my life and my death and my New life for you, my resurrection. Not out of your own efforts, not as you wish. I've given my life to you to be your Lord and not just your Savior. You can't pick one. We follow the whole Christ. 
the whole Christ lives in us. The whole Christ lived and died and rose for us. And so it's an all-in thing with the Lord. And so he, he calls this church and these people to, to repent because he loves them. And, you know, another sort of sub-point of that is he doesn't say, it doesn't say that this means to lose your salvation, number one. And number two, it says, you know, it, it doesn't say that. It says, that's an interpretation. It says, you will not blot your name out of the book of life. So we can't interpret that as, oh, can you lose your salvation? You must be able to lose your salvation. Also, he doesn't say, um, or I will blot your name out. He, he says, he, he, you know, he says, or he doesn't say, I have blotted their names out. He, he doesn't say that. He says, if you, to the one who conquers, I will, I will give a white garment and... I will not blot your name out. So, so a negation is not an assert is not a, a positive assertion. Okay, um, it's not the same thing. He's saying I won't do it. Um, I know it's a minor point and it's a bit tenuous, but it, it's true. Okay, so we don't want to overinterpret here. And there's a lot of Old Testament stuff here, and I think that it, even beyond Moses, it may this may go back to the Garden, and that kind of touches on it. Totally touches if it does on what I said about Jesus taking death upon himself and giving us his life in, 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 uh, um, in our place. Because it, I think it goes back, this could go back to Adam. I mean, life, the book of life, the, the, the tree of, of life. Adam was cast out of the garden, was not able to eat from the tree of life, and he died. Jesus was at the tree, which the cross is referred to the tree throughout the New Testament, Acts and beyond, here in Revelation. It is, I think, in Revelation 22 at the end. And at the tree, the second Adam, Jesus, um, he made the right decision. He obeyed God perfectly, and he was cast out. He should have been brought in. He made the right decision, but he gave us, he gave us that record. God looked at us as having made the right decision because Christ conferred that upon us. And instead of looking at us as the ones that disobeyed, he, he gave uh, he conferred essentially that obedience of Christ at the tree to to all who would look to the second Adam by faith. We're born in the first Adam. We're reborn in the second. And so he was cast out, blotted out, um, that we might be brought in. And so I think I think this, you know, again, regardless of how we interpret this, it's a, it's a, it's very much a word of warning, but there's grace upon grace covering it because of who Christ is and what He's done. He's done. He's the one speaking this word. Now, let me actually look at my notes and see. I, I want this to be. Um, I don't. I don't want this to be too much longer. But let me look at this word and see if there's anything else that uh, I would like to. I think just a bit of introspection here, Lord, in what way are we putting up appearances? Do we look, this church looked great. In what ways do we look great? And it may be, maybe I'm speaking to you personally. The Holy Spirit may be pinging you in this. I'm, I'm also speaking to your church. I'm speaking to the American church as a culture, uh, as, as part of a culture and whether, whatever, wherever you are. I'm in Houston. What is the church in What is the culture in Houston? You know, Sardis, this church, um, all these churches kind of take on some of the characteristics. It's impossible not to, right? Of the culture around them. So rather than taking on the characteristics, you know, we, we ought to be 
rather than taking on the characteristic of the, of the culture around us, we ought to be infusing the culture around us with the characteristics of Christ. Um, but, but, but all these churches uh, take on the characteristics of the city in which they live and the culture in which they, um, in which they live and work. And, and Sardis was famously um, an imp- sort of an impregnable, there was an impregnable, it was, it was built upon a, um, a rocky crag and it was an ancient city, as all seven of these are, that was thought to be unassailable because it was up on a high point. And it, it, but it was taken twice, but it wasn't taken through overt conquest because it was on such a, um, an advantageous um, point. It was taken by stealth. So in other words, the city itself, Sardis, was taken through... It had a lot of confidence in its position, in its appearance, and because of that, it got lazy, and it was it was taken unawares. And so that's, I think, a, a picture of what has happened with the church and what Jesus is exploiting that um, to advantage and saying that you have become complacent because you have a good reputation, you appear alive. It looks like you're doing all the right things. I mean, think of a church that looks, that has a big budget, lots of people, um, maybe a, a beautiful building and lots of wonderful programs. But, but he says, hey, the true diagnosis is you're dead. What can creep on into the inside of a church like this is you could think, man, everything's clicking. God must really be pleased with us, but you can lose hold of the gospel, which is that we're all sinners deserving of the just wrath of God and saved through no good of our own uh, by his grace in Christ, through the life and death of Jesus, his own son, God Almighty. And that is what we, that covers us from Everything we do is a walking out of that undeserved gift. And so the grace to the, to the least of these pouring out of us, it, it, it ought to be there. Um, love to the poor, tending to those on the edges, um, living generous. Not, you know, in the, there's so much... But the programs and the pomp and the beautiful glitzy buildings and the all the stuff, the the fog machines and the you know just looking the part can be so it's so much part of our culture that it can become part of the church and it has in America. And it's so much of it is about the stage and the music and the quote worship and the quality of everything and how to get my car and my house and the edifices and my kids and how shiny and beautiful and how big are the bows and What's the resume and what schools are they going? That's all crap. If it's, it's all just, it can be okay, but it's, it's not the heart of things. It's not our true condition. Do we have a poverty of spirit because we understand the gospel and we've, we rest in that? That we've been saved through no good of our own. We deserve hell. Jesus took it for us and he gave us heaven. He gave us himself. He gave us his perfect relationship with the Father. He's restored us. Does that grace pour out of us? Or are we just living by appearances? 
and that's really the heart of this word. And I think, you know, in Houston, we um, can't speak for the whole United States, but just Houston, there's a lot of wealth here. There's a lot of materialism. And um, there's overwork because of it. We work too much to make too much money to provide for too many things. I'm, I'm guilty, as a, even as a pastor, you know? And so it's get easy to get caught up in. We can think that that's, that's what the life of the church is about. That's what God's people ought to be. No, it's not. And I think we're prayerless because of that, because we think, okay, we've got to do stuff. And we can be, all of this can be really well-intentioned, right? But this is a sobering wake-up call. I mean, Christ says, wake up, wake up, wake up. Is it Isaiah 60 where God says the same thing? So he's maybe pulling back from that, pulling that into this and saying to, to his church, wake up. And, you know, it can be well-intentioned. We can be doing these things, thinking this is what we ought to be doing and, and thinking that this is what God weighs. But... You know, if I do this, if I do that, if I, and our church has been, we try to do things in our own strength, but Christ, the first work is the work of prayer, the work of, of fasting, of saying, I let go, I can't do this, uh, empty myself, fill me with you, help, we need your power to do anything, we need your strength, we need your spirit. Prayer is the end of me and the beginning of God, as it were, but we don't, we, we in Texas, we love our independence. We love our strength, but independence is the cardinal sin of the Christian. We, we are made to be totally dependent on God. Jesus was totally dependent on his Father through the Spirit, and we ought to be as well. And I just pray um, that we can be. I pray that he helps us to repent and to, to live as he did. Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does that the son does likewise. And then he says in John 15, that's John 5, 19, by the way, in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. Um, Lord, help us to not just start life with you, not just start down the road of following you, Jesus, but to finish what you've called us to, to finish the race. Everyone starts. So many start. Very few finish. But in this text here, Jesus says to this church, I have not found your works complete. Again, Ephesians 2.10, he has created good works for us to walk in. Before time for us to walk in. Jesus finished the work and he is in us and he calls us to conquer, to persist, to persevere, hupomone, long suffer, to complete the race. It's not a merit, it's not a sprint. The Christian life. It's a marathon. To quote Nietzsche, uh, and I think Eugene Peterson wrote a book to this um, with his title, he calls us to a long obedience in the same direction of following him, but it's a life of faith. It's a spirit-empowered life. It's a life of prayer, of conversation with God, of listening to him, of speaking with him, of letting who he is pass through us to others. To remember the gospel again and again and again, to be remembered of it day by day by day in his word, together reminding ourselves of the gospel and speaking it and and confessing our sins and receiving forgiveness upon forgiveness upon forgiveness upon forgiveness. Okay, God bless you. God's God's not a fool by appearances, okay? Run to him. God bless you.